If you have your copy of God's Word tonight, we're going to begin a new study, and we're going to begin to move through the Gospel of Mark, the shortest of the Gospels. So Mark's Gospel, and we're going to look at the opening couple of paragraphs tonight. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 1. And uh, I must confess to you, over the course of my ministry, I have preached through and I've taught through a good number of the New Testament books and the Old Testament books. As you know, on Sunday morning, before the holidays, we were in the book of Second Samuel. Uh, but this is my first time in preaching through one of the Gospels. Now, of course, I've preached from the Gospels on many, many occasions, but I've never just taken one of the Gospels and moved uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and that's what we're going to do over the course of our time together tonight and the next number of weeks. And my prayer is that it's not just going to be a study and that we're going to exchange information, but I pray that it'll be transformation for us and that we will see Jesus in a brand new light, maybe in a deeper way than we've ever seen him before. So tonight is really just by way of introduction, and we'll get into the meat in the weeks to come. But follow with me, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, <clears throat> Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locust and wild honey. And preached, saying, There comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So may God add his blessings tonight as we launch out on this study, verse-by-verse verse study of the Gospel of Mark. Of course, you know that the Gospel of Mark is indeed the shortest of all of the Gospels, just 16 chapters, and it uh, has a, a lot of information that you will find in other Gospels that are not included in Mark's Gospel. But what you may not realize is that Mark's Gospel was actually the first one that was written. And it was written somewhere about 50 years or so after the, um, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So it is the oldest of all of the four Gospels. And uh, there are many Bible scholars who say that one of the sources that Mark used to draw his information from the Gospel, of course we know that he was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. We know that God divinely imparted to him the word to transcribe. But many Bible scholars would say that the Apostle Peter was very instrumental in helping Mark write this gospel. In fact, there are some uh, ancient writers that refer to this as the gospel of Peter because he was such an influential person in the life of Mark to help him compile the information that now makes up the gospel of Mark. Not only is it the shortest book of the gospels, but did you know that the Gospel of Mark has also been translated more than any other book of the Bible? It has been put into more languages throughout this world. Now, I would have said uh, that it would have been the Gospel of John. 
But uh, I have been reading some about the translations of Mark's Gospels and Wycliffe Bible translators usually when they will go into a village that has limited exposure to the Gospel in their language that the first book they use to begin the translation process is the Gospel according to Mark. So it is very uh, unusual in some respects. Something else that is unique uh, to Mark's Gospel is, you know, all the Gospel writers highlight a certain aspect of who Jesus was. For example, uh, Matthew's gospel. Matthew sees him as king. That's why the wise men came in Matthew's gospel and says, where is he that is born king of the Jews? I think it's in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus comes to Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. They say, is this the king? And you find that phrase over and over in Matthew's gospel because they are, the emphasis was the king. Well, when you come to the, uh, to the um, uh, gospel, say, of John, John's emphasis is that Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And that's John's emphasis all the way through. Well, the Gospel of Mark, Mark sees Jesus as a servant. As the tireless servant serving God and the tireless servant serving man. Do you know outside John, the person John, not John the Baptist, But John, the beloved disciple of the Lord Jesus, there is more biblical information given about John Mark than anybody else in the New Testament. So he is certainly a a prominent figure when you begin to read about him. His mother, in her home, she opened up the home to the church of Jerusalem, which is one of the first century churches. So we know that through that, Mark had a godly heritage and a godly family, and that Mark's mom really tried to make a difference for Christ. Also, you'll remember when the Apostle Paul started his missionary journey on his very first journey. What was the name of the young man he took along with him that got mad and quit? Or either got afraid and quit? John Mark, right? John Mark traveled with Paul on that first journey, and either he didn't like the food, he didn't like the accommodations, He didn't like the opposition that they faced. Whatever it was that he didn't like, John Mark decided the missionary life is not for me. So John Mark quit and he came back home. Paul never forgot that. You remember? Because later on when Barnabas was going with Paul on a trip, Barnabas says, let's go get John Mark and bring him. Paul said, no, he quit me one time, and I'm not going to give him another opportunity. And Barnabas said, but listen, Paul, he's a good guy. He's changed now. And Paul would have nothing to do with that. Paul took Silas and went one direction. Barnabas took John Mark and went into another direction. Years later, when Paul was in prison, and Paul writes to young Timothy, he talks about some of the things that he needs while he's in prison. He says, go get my coat and bring my coat. It's cold here. Come see me before winter. He says, then bring my books and my parchments. And he said, bring John Mark, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So in the end, Paul and Mark kind of made up with one another. But young John Mark had such a godly influence in his life. His mom was a believer. He was, some people say that he was led to the faith in Christ by the apostle Peter's ministry. That's very possible. We know that he was related, distantly related to Barnabas. So Paul had a lot of people who, or excuse me, Mark had a lot of people who really sowed into his life. And uh, when you read the Gospels, and you read the Gospel of Mark, what you will find out that sets him apart from the other Gospel writers is the Gospel writers write about what Jesus did. 
They write more about what, what Jesus did, but John Mark seems to write more about what Jesus said. And just again by way of introduction, if I could give you one key word from this gospel that you find over and over and over again, it is the word, sometimes you see it in the King James, a straight way. Some translations use the word immediately, 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 as he's just following Jesus during his earthly ministry. So, as I've said, over the years I've preached through a number of different books, but this is my first preaching, first time preaching through the Gospels. And I don't want us to look at these stories that are so familiar to us and immediately think, oh, I already know that. I want us to look at these stories that, that are familiar but I want us to glean some things that maybe we've not seen before and to look at these gospel stories with fresh eyes. Um, both Matthew and Luke open up about the birth of Jesus, but Mark doesn't do that. You know what he does? When he opens up his gospel, he just jumps right in the middle of it. I mean, just right in the middle of it, and he introduces us to John the Baptist. Notice, if you will, Mark verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look at that word gospel. Of course, we know it is the word good news. Good news. I remember, I may have shared this with you before, first mission trip I'd ever taken was to Ukraine. And uh, we went down the, Black, down, um, the Dnieper River, down into the Black Sea. The northern countries of Ukraine spoke Ukrainian. The further south we got, uh, the language had switched to Russian. So we were giving out copies of the New Testament all along our trip as we would, would dock and we would go into different cities. And then when we got to a certain point south, we had to change Bibles that we were giving. Because, again, the first ones we were giving out were written in Ukrainian. And the next ones we were giving out, they had to be written in the Russian language. And I will never forget when I, when I uh, held up the Bibles. And, you know, I don't speak or read Ukrainian or Russian, either one. And I just had to believe that my... Uh, my folk who were helping me, that, that, that I was really giving out Bibles because I didn't know what it was. But uh, the front cover of it, uh, you know, I'm looking for words, Holy Bible. And I asked my translator, I said, tell me what this says. And he, he, was, he spoke Ukrainian, but he had broken Russian. And he was looking at that Russian Bible, and he was trying to find the right words to tell me in English. And it had... Uh, it was a New Testament. It was like um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, something to that effect. And he looks at it, and he looks at it, and he thinks for a minute, and he said this. He said, it is the most wonderful news. And that's how, I, that's how I remember him saying that about the Bible. It is the most wonderful news. And I've thought about that over the years. He was exactly right, wasn't he? Because the gospel is... It is the most wonderful news in the world. Jesus left heaven and came into the world to become a man, to be one of us, so he could die and be the ultimate sacrifice and substitute for our sin and take away our sin and reconcile us to God. That's the gospel. That's the most wonderful news. You see the name Jesus? It, is, it means Jehovah saves. It's the Old Testament name Joshua. Joshua, or God saves, Christ, it is the anointed one. So the good news is that God saves us through his anointed lamb. 
Paul said to the book to the church at, uh, at uh, the believers at Rome. He said, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto everyone who believes, from the Jew, power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, from the Jew first and also to the Greek." That the most wonderful news is the news that it is the power of God unto salvation to every single person who believes that the gospel is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful news. So John describes this gospel and this Jesus of the gospel as being the one whom God sent as Jehovah saves who is the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one. And he calls him in verse 1 there, the Son of God. Now that is one of the titles of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. But that does not mean, that does not mean that, that God somehow had a relationship with Mary and this physical relationship of God and Mary the offspring was Jesus. Of course not. What it does mean is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and she was able to conceive without the natural use of a man, and that what we have when Jesus came into this world was a visible manifestation of God in the flesh. Now, there are many faiths in this world that believe and teach, yes, Jesus was a good man, Yes, Jesus was a good prophet. Some would even go as far as to say, yes, he was a good miracle worker. And some would even go as far as to say he was a prophet sent from God. But I'll tell you, they'll fight you when they begin to talk about Jesus being God in the flesh or being the very Son of God because they deny that and they reject that. That's not, that's not Christianity. However it comes packaged, if a person denies that Jesus was the Son of God or that Jesus is God in the flesh. Let me, show you, let me show you what this means. Hold your place here. Turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 4, for just a moment. The book of 1 John, uh, just before you get to the book of Revelation. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So if you'll look in 1 John, chapter 4, look with me in verse number 1. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 1. He writes, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are, God, are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and now even already is in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So it is more to it than just believing, yes, he's a good teacher. Yes, a prophet. Yes, a miracle worker. True Christianity one well, of the tenets of our faith is that we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he is God in the flesh and he is the son, the only begotten son of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting 
life. Go back to Mark chapter 1 now. So he opens up his gospel, the beginning of the good news of Christ, the Son of God, verse 2. And then he gives us a quote from two Old Testament prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. That is uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what Malachi writes. And this is several hundred years before Mark writes this. Malachi says, Behold, I will send my messenger. He shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. He shall come, says the Lord of hosts. It's actually a prophecy predicting the arrival of John the Baptist. So when Mark is recording this now, and I can just see maybe he and Simon Peter sitting there together in their study, and Peter telling John Mark all about this, and John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing all of this down, and he reaches back there to that Old Testament word of Malachi that says, yes, God did say that he would send one who would be responsible to prepare the way for the arrival of Messiah. Go to verse 3. This is a quote from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. And if you jot down notes, that's Isaiah 40, verse 3. That's where that comes from. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In those days, when a, when a king or a person of great significance came in, to a particular area. Maybe they were looking at a piece of ground or maybe another town or whatever it might be, a town that they were visiting. The, uh, the king's court would send out a host of soldiers and a host of slaves to prepare the road for the king to travel. All the potholes would be filled, all the stones would be removed, the trees cut down, the stumps dug up, and they would try to make it as smooth as possible for the king's approach into the city. They were preparing the way for their king. John the Baptist was known as that kind of a person. Not physically cutting down the trees and digging up the stones and filling up the holes, but he would come. Remember, he was six months older than Jesus. We're going to look at his birth here in a little while. He was about six months older than Jesus. So he comes on the scene just prior to Christ's arrival, and his ministry is to prepare everybody's hearts, get ready, because after all of these hundreds of years of preaching that Messiah is going to come, that he's going to come, that he's going to come, John would say, he's here, he's here, look for him, look for him, and the whole time John and his ministry he's preparing that way to make it smooth for the arrival of Jesus so people could come to him in faith that was John the Baptist's ministry do you know that Jesus said John the Baptist is the greatest man born of woman so if you're ever asked who was the greatest person in the Bible outside Jesus the greatest person in the Bible would be whom? John the Baptist. We don't think about that a lot, do we? We think about Moses parting the Red Sea, Noah building the ark, Daniel in the lion's den, or Paul the apostle going on all the missionary journeys, being the, the, uh, the missionary to the Gentiles and bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. But Jesus said, the greatest man born of woman is John the Baptist because his role 
was to prepare the way, to lay it out, to make the path straight so others could come to Christ. So notice verse number 4 of chapter 1. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Circle that word preach. It means to herald, to proclaim, kerygma, to preach, to herald, to proclaim. John stood on the banks of the Jordan River. What was his ministry? Get ready. Here he comes. Get ready. Here comes the Messiah. His heart was just ablaze with that message. And the Bible says that he did preach the baptism of repentance. What is repentance? True repentance. True repentance is to turn. It's to do an about face. It's actually a, it's actually a military term where it comes from. Um, to do an about face. You're walking in one direction and it's to turn and walk in the other direction. Uh, when we really repent, now listen carefully, true biblical repentance is this. It is not just feeling sorry for something we've done wrong. It's not just feeling guilty over something we've done wrong. But true biblical repentance affects our attitudes, our actions, and our will. And if we say that, oh yeah, I recognize I've done something wrong, and we ask the Lord to forgive us for it, and we continue in that same direction, and we do it again, is that true repentance? It's not, is it? Because true repentance reflects a change where we turn, and, and in our will, we say, I don't want that anymore as part of my life. I'm going to repent from that, and I want to walk in this direction to the Lord. And repentance is demonstrated by a change in our actions. A change in our actions, a change in our attitudes, a change in our wills. Because we desire now, we want to please God about this thing. So right now tonight, if maybe any of us have any kind of a besetting sin that the devil keeps bringing back into our minds, and the Bible says like a, a dog returns to its own vomit, uh, that we go back to that and go back to that and go back to that. Let God free us from that and liberate us from that and have that change of heart and mind and attitude and say, I don't want that in my life. I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to have a change of attitude and a change of will, and it's going to be reflected in a change in my actions. That's true biblical repentance, a change of actions. I had a, a young man uh, a number of years ago who uh, came to faith in Christ, and I'll never forget, this is what he said to me. He said, uh, he said Pastor Darrell, he said, I don't know if you know, and at the time I didn't know, uh, I had no, no idea. He said, I don't know if you know or not. He said, he said but uh, for years, he said, um, I, I drove a beer truck. And he said, that's what I did. I just went and I delivered, I delivered alcohol to all the stores and beer. And he said, that's just what I did. And he said, but you know, since I became a Christian, he said, God just convicted me of that. And I just don't feel like that's something I should be doing. And he said, so I got a different job. And you know, I've thought about that and, and thought, you know, what a, what a wonderful testimony to say, this is something that used to be part of my life, but now I believe the Lord has so changed me that I don't feel comfortable doing that anymore. And I'm going to turn from that. And true repentance is reflected in a change of our actions 
and in a change of our, of our behavior. So when John is preaching, he's not just preaching, you got to believe and that's it. No, he's saying real belief calls for a change. And that change is in our repentance. We turn and we turn away from whatever it was and we turn to the Lord. Remember Zacchaeus when he climbed up the sycamore tree and he saw Jesus? And, and, and the Lord says, Zacchaeus, come down. Uh, I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus was converted. He said, Lord, if I have taken anything from anybody by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. That's a change of action. Not just a belief, but a belief that is so real that it changed his action. So it's not just feeling sorry for something we've done. But it's having a change of action, a change of attitude, and a change of will. I'm going to leave you with this because we do have business conference here in just a moment. But listen, when John was preaching on the banks of the Jordan River, now you've got to remember, eventually, eventually John had his head chopped off. Okay? As John preached there at the Jordan River, people from um, the lower Jordan Valley would come to John to be baptized of him. People from Jerusalem would come to be baptized by him because they had a hunger to know God. And John was preparing the way for the Lord. And it wasn't until, listen, until John really confronted sinfulness that the crowds turned on John. They did the same thing for Jesus. Because something about fallen human nature, we do not want to hear the word no. When, when Jesus came, they didn't nail him to a cross because he said, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow and they toil not and neither do they spin. They didn't reject him for that. They didn't reject him because he said, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify God in heaven. They didn't reject him because, because he said, you are the light of the world. No. He came on the scene, and there were some things he had to say no to. And when you say no, listen, people will love you to death as long as you can say yes to every request, right? And as long as you can, can affirm every request. But if you have to say no, listen, you become public enemy number one. And that's what happened to Jesus because he came on the scene, and he said on one occasion, he said, oh, brood of vipers. He said, on the, on the outside, you look like whitewashed sepulchers, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And he called them out on the carpet, and they all turned against him. And you remember John the Baptist, when he's, he's dealing with, with a situation um, where, uh, where um, Herod is living with his, uh, uh, someone who's not his wife. He calls them out on that carpet, and she actually comes out on the scene, and she asks for the head of John the Baptist, and that's ultimately what she gets because he had to say no to a request. So John Mark presents this bulldozer, if you will. John preparing the way for Jesus. Verse 5, very quickly. There went out to him all the land of Judea and Jerusalem. They were baptized of him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. And it was a beautiful scene. And I'll just close with this story. All right, we'll pick up next Wednesday night when I have a little bit more time. A few years ago, our church went to Ecuador to build a church on a, as a mission, part of a mission trip. And when we got to this little village, the church that the community was worshiping in 
Miss Francis was there. Uh, who else? Anyone else in here tonight that was with us in Ecuador? Uh, I know Randy Joyce was there, Drew Joyce, the Riggs, a number of us, but not in this service right here tonight. Honestly, when we got to that little village, the church they were worshiping in was just some boards that were tacked up, wrapped in plastic. And when I went inside the church, I couldn't stand up straight. That's how low the ceiling was. And I could just about reach and touch one wall with this hand and the other wall with this hand. I might have had this much room. Now, it was, it was deeper, maybe from here to, to the wall, maybe. But it was not very wide. And this is where, where those people in Ecuador were worshiping. And if you remember, we did a pancake fundraiser and helped raise them some of the money. And we went over there and we helped um, do some work to the building itself. And uh, when, when our team was there, we had the first service in the church, the new church. Even though it wasn't finished, it still it had a roof on it, it had a floor, it had block walls. And it was a great step ahead from where they were. And inside that church, they said, we want y'all to do the first service. We weren't prepared to do that. So I immediately got Randy, and I said, Randy, would you give us some scripture and, uh, and, and, uh, and have a few comments? And, and Randy did. I'll never forget that. And Drew Joyce, Randy's son, did our translation. As I preached, he translated for me. And the rigs, they went out literally behind the church, and they got some dried corn stalks. And they did a stick drama <laughs> with those dried corn stalks. And then we had communion in the first service of that church. But I say that to say, when we left... The bus that we were in was driving down just a little pig pass of a road. I mean, literally as if you were to drive out in the middle of a field. Round the corner. It was not a road. We were kind of making the road to where we were going. But we were going to a river. Because there were about, best I can remember, about eight or ten people in that church who were to be baptized that Sunday morning. And we got to that river. And these guys from that church met us there and they started damming up that river and they took uh, rocks and twigs and leaves and brush anything that they could do to get the river to kind of dam up enough and one at a time those believers came down the, the river bank and there they got baptized and I thought what a precious precious scene and that kind of is what I envision here for John as he's saying Messiah's here Get ready for him. And people were confessing their sins and repenting. And John was baptizing to show that what happened on the outside is a picture of the Holy Spirit when he comes in your life and he's going to wash you on the inside. So I'm going to leave you with that. We'll stop right here tonight. And uh, let's have a brief prayer together. And then we will have our, our business session. Lord, we're so encouraged just to read your word because we see ourselves on the pages of Scripture and we're reminded, God, that these are not just ancient stories, but this is our life, all of our lives, Lord, and how you invited us to be part of your family. And it's the great redemption story that has just so changed our lives. God, thank you for that. Would you bless us now as we have a time of business session? Help us to always make the decisions that will uh, move our church forward and that will glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.